this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here to talk today with Dr. Christine Habercorn, who has been working with us at the Restorative Community Coalition for over a decade. Welcome to the call, Dr. Habercorn. Oh, thank you, Joy. It's it's great to talk to you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring this subject. So I have a question to start right off. You started working with us a while back, but you your actual interest in social justice, in racism, um, you know, issues of poverty and homelessness and privilege, business development. It's a you've got a wide background, so g- talk to us about what got you intrigued in this kind of work in the first place. Well, it started when I was uh, a youngster. Uh, I was about. 12 years old and um, my family and I, we were living in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, It was um, a time where, you know, things seemed somewhat idyllic, you know, we're just out of the fifties and uh, uh, the Vietnam war uh, hadn't progressed at that point. It was always a place yonder, you know, never at your back door. And so my, um, uh, one summer, my, my mom decided that we would rent a cabin in the woods of New Hampshire. It was uh, a year that my father, who worked for the New York Journal American as a librarian and a researcher, um, was not on strike. Uh, the newspaper guild in New York were, <laughs> it seemed like they were terminally on strike. So that year, without the strike, we had more money uh, to spend. And so we rented a cabin. And as I said, I was 12 years old. And, and in that process, my mom found an ad in the New York times called the real estate agent and said that we were interested in renting that particular cabin. And so there was a couple of days that went by and the real estate agent called my mom and said, are you Jewish? And my mom said, well, no, we're, we're Roman Catholic. And uh, uh, so my mom's not an activist. So the question didn't, um, didn't really shake her up other than to refute the fact that we were Jewish. We were not, you know, we, we just weren't Jewish. And uh, so it occurred to me as she was telling me what had transpired on the telephone, it had occurred to me based on two pieces of information. Number one place, we were from Brooklyn, New York. Number two, our last name. Our surname was Habercorn. And Habercorn is a German sounding name, although it has its roots in um, uh, for the Osk- uh, through the Ashkenazi Jews. But at the time we were Roman Catholic and had no notion of that. And so it, 
it really impacted me that based on two pieces of information that we would have been denied renting a cabin. And as a, a youngster, uh, I had not, I don't think I was 13. As a youngster, it was, it, it hit me that other people based on what they look like, who they are, their names, their places of birth, are subjected to an enormous amount of derision, of racism, of just deny, denial by other communities. And um, so for me, this was an important factor and it, it changed my worldview. Of course, I was only 12 years old and my worldview was still pretty narrow at that point. But, it, but nonetheless, it was uh, something that I, I sat down and gave it a lot of thought. And so from then on, I started reading about different issues um, that covered um, people and their societies and how culture impacts people from childhood to, el to elders. Um, they're impacted in such a way that um, it will change their lives, not necessarily for the better. And so for well, me, what's interesting ahead. about that is that that was just one event. And one event in a young person's life can absolutely change the trajectory forever. And yet most of the time, we don't even notice when we make certain of these decisions, they're one-offs, you know. And you don't realize that one degree of shift or one degree of attitude or one degree of something that didn't fit right, didn't look like, didn't smell right, it can set you up with prejudice or beliefs or reactivity or awareness. I mean, it's not necessarily bad or good. It's just notice because well, these things that change the trajectory of your life. Well, it did. And I, I think for most teenagers, uh, that period of time uh, is a time to investigate, uh, for better or for worse. It's a time to investigate your world and how you will fit in that world. Sure. And so for me, um, it started me on a path of um, looking at politics, looking how government works, um, looking at different people in my neighborhood, uh, because uh, I grew up in New York, so we certainly had a wide variety of different faiths and culture and colors in in our area of Brooklyn. And um, so it wasn't until uh, I reached high school that that path sort of blossomed for me. Um, it was in the middle 60s that my parents decided to move from Brooklyn to San Francisco. And, which was a hotbed of all sorts of activism. And many of my colleagues, my classmates, we would drive down to San Jose on weekends to work with the migrant families and who, uh, whose husbands in most cases uh, work the fields for the growers in, in California. And so it, it enabled me to see how migrant families, you know, responded to their environment, how they raised their children in a, actually a very confined environment and, uh, you know, how they supported themselves. Uh, I, I began uh, 
listening to Dolores Huerta, who who began the El Cortito movement. And El Cortito in, in California at the time was the short hoe. And they were trying to get it banned in California because it created such disabling, disabling um, manifestations in the body. And, um, and it took about 10 years for uh, the California legislature to ban El Cortito or the short hoe. And they moved to a longer hoe, which you know, I said the art. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Talk to me. What is a short hoe or a longer hoe? What are you even talking about? Because that's not part of the conversation, at least not one that I've heard up here in the part of the country that I live in. Well, it's part of the conversation because it tells the story of how money can challenge people's lives and disfigure them without abandon, you know, uh, they, what do you think? Oh, the, the El Cortito is the short hoe is if you think of a long hoe, you know, the, what we would what purchase. Is a hoe? I mean, talk to us. Most oh. people don't even know that. A hoe is a farming implement. Um, many people today use it in their gardens to hoe weeds okay. and get rid of the weeds. And it, what it does, it breaks up the ground and in farming, you don't want weeds to grow with, with your crops because it removes the nutrients from the dirt that would go to the crops. So you, you need to weed your crops. And with California being uh, a very major crop producer for the nation, it was important that those crops were tended. And so the short hoe uh, facilitated that. And the short hoe not only created disabilities for the workers uh, because they, from morning to night, they would bend over. If you can picture this in your mind, they would bend over with the short hoe and with short rapid movements, move along a, uh, a planted row to clear out the weeds. And so once the short hoe was abandoned for the long hoe, um, it, cre it created a, um, a new sense that the workers had some power. And of course, during that period of time, Cesar Chavez began uh, the great boycott. I think probably most of your, your, your listeners might recall that. And for 25 years, I did not eat grapes because of it. Wow, so and you're talking about a social protest that was started over a farm implement because corporations didn't want their workers to use the longer hoe. No. And it and took it changed. That sounds like it changed a lot of things for migrant workers in California and probably around the country. Is that true? Well, it did. And I think it also set the path for dissension, uh, for hum uh, dissension towards money interest that were totally, totally adverse to human rights. I see. And so, you know, you morph that in, in, into my life. Um, you know, I went on to university. I had advantages that, um, you know, others from uh, the migrant camps didn't have. And because of that, for somehow I, um, I had this vision that I would be part of a movement or movements 
that would make changes in our communities. Um, when I was at uh, when I was attending the University of San Francisco, I worked for Robert Kennedy's campaign. I, I still have my campaign badge and <laughs> uh, fraying. I should say it's fraying now. But uh, you know, I did precinct walking, and this is long before cell phones and online and uh, online communication. And and I remember walking through the Hunters Point section of San Francisco, and going door to door. That was the first time I'd ever done something like that. Wow. Going door to door. Here is this uh, white girl walking door to door in a predominantly African American community in San Francisco, and people. V- invited me in to have tea with them that was (laughs) that was an amazing experience um you know probably one of the benefits i had entering polit you know entering the political um uh arena in in a in a worker way and um so for me that was that started my my real entry into uh, working in political spheres, I worked for Jerry Brown's campaigns, both his, his first two gubernatorial campaigns. I marched for Greenpeace in Southern California. And so for me, um, you know, seeing community as a place that I was going to live in for the rest of my life, that I needed to be a part of it. And I need to see, I need to, actively engage in bringing up communities and bringing up people to a standard that they are useful, they are productive, and that they have a true place in this world. Wow. Well, we're going to take a quick break here just for a minute, and we'll be right back. Uh, Chris, I would love for you to be able to talk a little bit more about how that experience those experiences those early high school college experiences formed the next few decades of your life as you got involved because I know that you have a background that goes from business to to nonprofits to social research issues so let's come back in just a minute and hear some more from Dr. Christine Habercorn. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our restorative community coalition give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back, Um, Dr. Habercorn. Tell us some more about what happened to you as life changed, because it's really interesting to talk to people of different generations and different cultures from around the nation, because in Washington state, we have a certain outlook on life. We have certain viewfinders in which we see things. So it's always interesting to be able to bring people with different cultures and different backgrounds to bring perspective into the Pacific Northwest, which is where we live, where I live. Tell us more what some of these different perspectives are. Well, I had always maintained a personal vision that I would uh, always involve myself in the community in some way. And, and I've maintained that, um, and I continue to maintain that, um, you know, probably as long as I live, it's, it's a little difficult to extricate myself from, um, 
you know, from community and community action. I, I have a very deliberate personality, but I was never really very sure of myself until I became involved with um, activities and, um, and community activities. And so through, through high school, through university, and then I started, I, I was actually a stay-at-home mom for a period of about uh, 15 years uh, raising my children, but I still maintained uh, my activism. As I mentioned earlier, I, I uh, marched on behalf of Green Pre- Greenpeace and, uh, and, and, and Jerry Brown's campaigns. Um, so it was important to me, and I think it was important that I, I exhibited to my children that I um, that being actively enrolled in discussions about community and about people and about politics and about issues that were important uh, to the building of society um, was critical for them too, as as much as it was for me. Sure. So. So where did it go when you went from being a professional or being an activist or being an intellectual, you ended up in his motherhood and then that transferred into a, a business and, and different kind of a professional career. How did that, how did well, that come about? Yes. Uh, I became a, a university professor and a nonprofit executive director. And uh, um, so those were two areas where um you know, I engaged in, with a lot of different people with with local issues. Um, I was an artist as well, and and I uh, was very active in the in the Dallas, Texas arts community. Um, and as a as an artist, I was also issues oriented. My my artwork was issues oriented, and so it's yeah, I know it's it's like a cold you can't get rid of, and um, and so it was important for me to play a role, again, that would build up community. I, um, years later, I became the economic development president for, uh, for, the, for the local economic development board in Winsboro, Texas. And I did that because for me, issues and money go hand in hand, regardless of what, which side of the fence you're on. And so for me, it was important um, as a professional grant writer, as a manager of people. So let me interrupt you just, just for a second there. How does business and nonprofit work and civic issues, how, what is that intersection there? And what is it about that that intrigues you, Chris? Well, uh, from a nonprofit perspective in it and being a consultant, even though I was teaching and moved into corporate life later on, uh, I always, I remained involved in nonprofit, mainly as a consultant. And my role there was to uh, help emerging organizations build their, build their organization. Of course, one of the important topics was money. How are you going to raise money? And how are you going to work with uh, community leaders and, and uh, businesses to um, enjoin your, your mission for the betterment of the community? And so for me, um, whenever I faced 
a, a board of directors and gave them or presented my ideas of how they should grow. My first question is how much money do you have in your bank account? And, and, and frankly, the most board members did not know. And then I asked, well, how do you, uh, where does that money come from? Well, the, you know, of course, everybody says, well, from grants. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of organizations like yourself that want a piece of that pie. So what, 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 what will assure you of reaching that goal? And nobody had an answer. And, you know, that's the one thing about nonprofits. They start off with passion. And it's easy to latch on to a mission with passion. And there's nothing wrong with that. The, the issue is passion is not a foundation for um, being money conscious of where you are uh, in your financial life. And so when you, when you take money and, and align it with a passionate project, it takes a lot of monitoring of personalities, um, of your checkbook, of the laws that govern um, nonprofits and how they organize. And so money becomes a critical item that has to... Um, that regulates you. And so some for someone like me to go into a nonprofit and say, well, you know, we need to rethink your mission and how many other groups are in the in the community uh, that have a similar mission. And, you know, it, it is all about money because that pie gets pretty lean if you have five organizations in a community that are are looking after the same dollars. And so those dollars are spread pretty thin. How will you maintain yourself? It's like anybody at home. How do you maintain your home, your family, um, uh, with the dollars that you have coming in from your job? Um, so you it know, was you really, it was really interesting for me to get involved in nonprofit work because my entire life was business. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what you do, and and the only way I ever made money was if I worked hard and earned it. And I had to do things that was like sell product or sell services or sell something that allowed people to do an actual trade and a business exchange. And one of the odd things I discovered in the nonprofit world and in politics is that in a way they are predisposed to be victim oriented, like to sell the, the sad sack story or the victim or the this or the that. And so, and it's actually sort of like churches as well. You know, if you become good at telling the story of, of what is hurting or of the people who are being victimized, oftentimes it's easier to sell that story to get fundraising and even to get grants in the, in the grant giving world. So walking the line between how do you actually build enterprising projects that can help an association move from being codependent on donations, philanthropic donations or grant donations to the point where you can either be membership driven or you can do things that have value in the community that inspire business people to get involved with you, to help you become independent or creative. So that's an interesting perspective that you bring up. Well, I, I, a couple of things that I, I normally uh, offer 
uh, as to how to raise funds for an organization. The first thing is to understand what relationship means. And you have to be in relationship with potential donors. And it doesn't mean that you're going to receive donations immediately, but you may have to maintain those relationships. And so keeping contact with potential donors is very critical for fundraisers. Another thing that I, uh, that I initiated in Texas was uh, organizing cells throughout the state of Texas for the, for the benefit of an organization that I worked for. It was a very wide ranging organization in Dallas. And uh, because of that, uh, their mission, uh, which was de uh, dependent on funding, um, their mission their mission required funds throughout the entire state because they had a presence throughout the entire state. So what I what I organized were cells of and what you mean. Hold on, really remember we're talking to an audience of people who are interested in incarceration. So you're not talking about incarceration no. cells. You're talking about pods or groups or neighborhoods of people who are organizing around some kind of an, a like kind or, or geographic location you're talking about, right? Right, of course. And um, <laughs> one of the, <laughs> one of the uh, so what I did is I organized different pods around the state and those pods were responsible for fundraising in their communities, sure. which meant they were in a better position to be in relationship with the people of their community. It wasn't like someone from San Antonio going to Amarillo and, and stepping on someone's door, you know, knocking on someone's door and saying, you don't know me, but I need $10,000, you know, for this. So when you have personal relationship, uh, while it doesn't necessarily make fundraising easier, it certainly gets you through the door. And um, so, Fundraising is, uh, it's like a family. I mean, you have to work well with your donors. You have to work well with your group. And so the pods created these family groups of donors within a specific community. So what's interesting about this is that right now, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with the aftermath of COVID. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with a, a fracturing and a breakdown between what used to be community organizational structures that bypass the need for marketing or strategic design and all those things. But today, this is the 21st century, and it's actually 2023. And it's a period after a lot of our social networks have been fractured by COVID, because mm -hmm. there was a lot of trauma that came in, there were restrictions that were put on people. And there's, there's groups that have been ostracized, like the homeless have been ostracized. People who are dealing with justice system issues are ostracized. People who are of one political party or another political party or people who, you know, it's like there's everybody is dealing with some form of economic, social, civic, political, emotional trauma, it seems. So today we're looking at a change in culture and style what would you like to, what what could you say about that? And let me give you just a minute to think about it. And we're going to take another break and we'll be right back with Dr. Chris Haberkorn talking with us about the challenges that 
nonprofits are facing in this, the 23rd year of the year 2000. Are you a member of patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. Welcome back to the call. Let's proceed where we left off. Well, Joy, um, in response to what what is the landscape of fundraising for nonprofits and what are nonprofits um, engaging in these days? So I think we can all agree that social services are high, a high priority on many communities, um, but they are expensive. And nonprofits, while they try to fill in the gaps, uh, it's, it's very difficult. So, but the best way that I, I believe that we can um, get the community to back programming for um, issues that are not necessarily popular, for instance, like homeless, um, former incarcerated individuals roaming the streets, you know, and um, uh, the military actions by um, police enforcement, all those things are very visible in the news. Mm-hmm. And, but we get behind that with money. If we go to businesses, especially businesses, because they are so profoundly impacted by these issues, we can go back to businesses and say, hey, I, you know, we need money to, to move forward with, with our program so that we can reduce uh, we can reduce these populations or at least and provide for them. Uh, but we need some help. And what I what I have recommended in the past for difficult situations is to form small cohorts of different industries. So, for instance, if you live in a large city that has, you know, five dealerships, car dealerships, get that five, those five together to uh, write a check collectively for the for your programs or for your uh, your organization um, but until that can happen then the issues will never be resolved because cities are battling not only budgets but they're battling internally with personnel that is militant to keeping certain areas of um, of reform at bay so when you Interesting. So what, what do you mean by that? So I, let me back up. I think what I would, what I heard you say is that in communities, if you've got a major political movement, like to build a jail or to, to do, you know, to fight the homeless or do whatever needs to be done, you're recommending possibly doing collaborative meetings where you might bring a whole sector of people that are of like kind type together and then engage them in a conversation about what are the issues that they're dealing with? Why are they dealing with them? How could be, how could they be resolved, helped or assisted if they were to be involved in what's going on in the community? Because most of us end up siloed, just like you talked about, you know, at the beginning of the call, 
people get prejudices or attitudes or beliefs and we get stuck in those patterns and then we don't know how to think outside of them. So you're right. recommending like doing collaboratives of sorts with different groups of people to find out what their issues are, match them with the issues of your clientele and see if you can find a way to ameliorate or modify or solve the problems without asking for more regulation, more government taxes and more funding. So you're talking about self-leadership in a way. Well, and, my, and I'm also talking about groups joining other groups. So I always recommend starting a secondary board, a board of community members that not necessarily supports your mission, but that you can talk to them about your mission. So wow. for instance, I worked for an organization as a consultant um, that... The, the, the organization itself was Islamic. And so for the Islamic community, it's challenging um, to be in a uh, predominantly Northern European Caucasian community who has no idea of what it means to be a Muslim in the United States. And so I always recommend that if you feel like the police are on your case and you feel that you're not getting anywhere with your local council people, it's best to start a secondary board of people in your leadership, in your community that may not have an understanding, but they will after they get to know you. And the key is how to get to know each other. Because when, we, when you get to know each other, it reduces tension. That's the number one issue is reducing tension. And because tension drives fear. So the idea that we have as a coalition is to expand the scope of what we're talking about as a coalition and truly bring cohorts of people of very mm -hmm. different groups together to discuss uh, issues of common cause and common in interest and common challenge, but to do it for the purpose of understanding and solving the problem as different from getting it together to argue over what the issues are. Like you actually get together with the purpose of learning what the issues are for each other and putting them on a, on a wall or a board or in a common cause place so you can look at what are the issues that are going on in the community now? What's the economics? Because our entire world changed. I mean, since 2000, everything about technology changed. Everything about our industries changed. And now we've just gone through three years of emergency conditions that changed how everybody does everything. Well, it's, you know, post-COVID um, is an issue that will is, is not stopping today. It's actually going to be moving into the future. Mm -hmm. And so the, the discussion is what are the lessons that we learned post COVID? Sure. And lessons are, we are, we are seeing so much community uh, dissension. We are seeing group against group, individuals against individuals. People are angry. Mm -hmm. People are angry. They're hurt. They're hurt. They're angry. Everybody is hurt one way or another. And we, and especially in business, I found that people don't like to admit that anything's wrong because mm -hmm. part of our training, part of the mindset business is 
I'm fine. I'm capable. That's why you should buy my stuff. And that's why you should continue to be loyal to me. But the fact is, if you're in business and 30% of your business was taken away by a civic action, and you're looking at the economic challenges we're facing today, and we're looking at the tax consequences we're facing today, and you're looking at how much businesses, small entrepreneurial people, homeowners, the middle class is going to have to pick up a lot of the taxes to cover all the government subsidies that came out. So there are ripple effects of money on top of money on top of money, and few people have the bandwidth or the knowledge to be able to understand how those things play out over the next 30 to 50 years. And it's and that's, a big deal. And that's why establishing cohorts with specific industries, you know, I'll have to tell you my story of one of my most successful cohorts. And it was, it was a card, the car dealerships. Mm -hmm. I could not go to a single car dealership and say, uh, I'm, you know, present my, my presentation of why I needed money uh, or my organization needed money. Uh, I could not go to somebody today and say, I need $10,000. Mm -hmm. What I have to do is go to uh, several dealerships and say, I would like to start a cohort of different dealerships and, and then help them decide what they can afford. And I think that is a more sensitive way of addressing uh, industries that, um, different industries that have experienced a tremendous downturn and are just scrambling to keep their employees. The, the important thing is we want businesses to keep their employees because if they do, then eventually they will prosper and they will hire more. Sure. And so it's, you know, it's, it's like, when one farmer plants a crop, the, the farmer next door will also plant, in many cases, a similar crop because ecologically, the crops will, will draw the necessary uh, wildlife that makes those crops productive. Well, and they cross-pollinate. They, they cross-pollinate cross and there's all kinds of benefits that come. And that's what we've got to actually start thinking about when building the future communities, because we've got, we've actually got been traumatized by so many people and so many things and so much economic damage. We don't know who to Learning. believe. We certainly don't know who to believe anymore. And um, and we uh, have learned, we've lost a lot of those old farming skills to work in communities and pods and neighborhoods, and we've lost trust. So today, that's one of the key things that we're going to have to do to build ourselves back as a community of networked people in little hubs to restore honor, integrity, and trust in our community. Would you not agree? Well, I, I do agree. And loss is a terrible thing. And many people have lost family members to a disease that may have been preventable. Yep. Or what? Or they were victimized by misinformation, and you know, made some choices that uh, uh, didn't help them. And uh, and I think it's important that um, sensitivity to all uh, aspects of a community, whether it's business or individuals, um, is so important. Uh, 
you know, we, we understand marginalized communities. That marginalization has expanded to areas that we would never have considered to be called marginalized. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's not about me versus them, the industry. It's about us. It's about us working together to make all this work. And how do we advance that? Again, going into the community, making cohorts, making those relationships. And um, for, for whatever reasons, by accepting people for who they are and making your case, people can be reasonable. The downside is if you are dealing with, uh, especially in fundraising, if you are dealing with people who are not responsive to your mission, then how do you make, how do you encourage them to be responsive? And that's when you bring in business and, and economic wellness, because if you don't work with the community in social areas, then you might as well pay for more incarceration. You might as well pay for um, more um, crime in your city. You might as well uh, hand it to them because everybody needs to be concerned with what is happening in the community. And it's so easy to dismiss what is happening in the community. It's, it's, it's like the, um, the jail issue in Bellingham. Um, do they need a jail? Well, no, they need to replace the jail. But do they need it for, and why do they need it? To expand because uh, crime is growing exponentially in Bellingham? Well, maybe we need to look at other alternative resources that would reduce incarcerated individuals to and shift them over to alternative resources. We know that um, people who are uh, challenged by life with mental illness, uh, they've seen destruction in their life that they just can't dismiss. And for whatever reasons, we need services to help them gain mobility, to gain uh, job resources, to gain their sense of wealth, a sense of worth. So one of, the big, one of the big conversations, I mean, people will often say we need to replace the jail. Well, we don't necessarily need to replace a jail. What we may need to do is repurpose the facilities we have. And if you redirect 40% or 50% of the people out of a facility, I mean, there are facilities that been, have been used for a hundred years, mm-hmm. including jails that have functioned perfectly fine for a long time. You have to change the occupancy load. You know, this is a real estate person. If you change the opposite, uh, the occupancy load, if you change the purpose, if you reinvent, reinvent how to use different things so that you put people into separate facilities who do not need incarceration. What they need is public support. What they need is services. What they need is a different kind of housing that is other than locked up places with gates that take them away from rehabilitation that actually Mm -hmm. cause more trauma. So it's an interesting and very complex conversation that needs to be had that is not an either or, it's an and plus. How do we help our community 
downsize our, our costs? How do we reallocate resources? And how do we work go to work together from many different cultures and personality types and viewpoints to say, how do we save our community from the economic disaster that has befell us? And we need and, to actually look at it from that standpoint is, you know, what do you think about that? I think, I think it's a time that we move from conversation to solutions and nonprofits can help tremendously by sending members to council meetings and speaking up, but not just speaking up with passion about the issue at hand. Um, we've probably have heard it before, but to come to the table with concrete numbers as to how this can work. Because mm -hmm. it takes more than one mind to come come together with numbers. How does so, this work? But sometimes you can't you don't you don't have the numbers. You're not we're not living in isolation. Like I can come with all kinds of numbers that are from my perspective. But if we don't come to the table with our numbers and say what are your numbers and what are other numbers and what are numbers from over at your organization and then talk about these numbers together. I and agree. say we have a pod we have a collective willingness here to talk about the economy of Whatcom County to say, what is Whatcom County doing? How are we dealing with the Canadian issues with border mm -hmm. crisis issues? How, how are we dealing with regenerative, you know, and an ecological disaster that we're dealing with? And how do we come to the table and talk about the physical and emotional health of people who have been traumatized by this situation. I mean, there's a lot of farmers. Sorry, I just got going. There's a lot of farmers who got hurt in the last three years. And who's talking to them about what's happening with them and bringing them together with the migrant workers, together with the people who've been cast out because of social and physical and COVID-related issues and the people who are dealing with mental health. That's the kind of thing that we need to be coming to the table with, I think. Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, I lived in Laguna you Beach. You only have a couple minutes, so you got to tell it quick. Okay. <laughs> I lived in Laguna Beach uh, for a number of years, Laguna Beach, California, and we had a um, an immigrant worker, immigrant workers to work the fields in South Orange County. And they lived, many of these workers lived in a abandoned hotel motel uh, complex. There was um, there were families living there, but the workers would gather on Laguna Canyon Road in the rush hour traffic of the morning, um, waiting for pickup for to go to the field. And so, because of the danger posed to the traffic, to the individuals that were waiting and to the drivers of the vehicles who were going to pick up the workers, um, the city of Laguna decided to, to build benches, <laughs> to put in a coffee stand. <laughs> it was a coffee stand and make a wide enough turnout on the road so that trucks could easily enter and, and leave that area without endangering lives or oncoming traffic 
And, you know, it may not seem like a, a very large initiative, but, you know, it was very impactful. Well, because- and, and actually that's innovation and mm-hmm. that's listening to the real needs of the community. So for the purpose of solving the problem, not for the purpose of winning an advantage. Right. And it shifted community sentiment because you know, uh, people would, would grumble as they would drive in that area because traffic was stopped because the the truck wanted to move into and pick up workers. And, and so the anger was directed at the workers, not the situation. I, I see. And so, so that, so key to the conversation when we're talking about resolutionary thinking and bringing solutions to the table in your view could be said, what is it that the goal that you're really trying to achieve for the whole community? Like what is for mutual benefit and you go to the conversation with that kind of a question first. Absolutely. And it's being direct. Uh, it's not about arguing. It's about being direct with what issues are on the table and to stick to talking to about those issues and not obfuscating. Awesome. Well, I'd really like to thank you for joining us on the conference call. We're on the podcast. We are over time now. So we need to close it up. And is there a couple of last second, you know, a couple of last comments or are you, are you ready to say goodnight? We'll bring you back to it for another conference call. Well, I'd love to be back for another conference call, but uh, think of your community as first in the development of your community. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Christine Habercorn. Thank you for joining us on I Change Justice podcast. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.